0: Perhaps we can turn again to uh, John's Gospel in chapter 6. It's a wonderful passage of the Word of God in which the Lord Jesus tells us that He makes a complete complete provision for His people who are both certainly and eternally secure. In the opening verses of the chapter, we're told about the amazing uh, occasion when the Lord Jesus miraculously took a boy's lunch of five barley loaves and two fish, and uh, fed a great crowd of 5,000 people. And we're told that the next day the great crowd came looking for Jesus again, and when they found him, they say to him there in verse uh, 26, uh, and... uh, uh, Sorry, he says to them in verse 26 and 27, "'Most assuredly I say to you, "'You seek me not because you saw the signs, "'but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. "'Do not labor for the food which perishes.'" but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they're still thinking about uh, physical bread, the physical bread Jesus had just given to them, and they want more of that. Uh, But the Lord Jesus tells them that they should seek what completely satisfies, uh, a satisfaction that only he can give. And they reply to Jesus then in verse uh, 30 is this what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you what work will you do our father in the our fathers in eight manner in the in the desert as it is written he gave them bread from heaven now that might seem a little strange to our ears because only the day before the lord jesus had just miraculously provided Bread for more than 5,000 people, for that great crowd. And yet here in verse 30, they ask, what sign then will you do? They haven't forgotten the miracle that the Lord Jesus had only recently performed, but they're saying that might be a bit of a one-off. The question is, can you go on supplying our needs? Uh, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness for 40 years. Can you do that? Can you do it again for us uh, today? And Jesus gives a a corrective to that in verse 32 and 33. He says, it wasn't Moses that gave you bread in the wilderness, but my Father gave you the true bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then their response to Jesus in verse 34 shows that they're still thinking in terms of physical bread. Uh, thinking of Jesus as a Messiah who would supply their physical needs, providing free bread to them. In fact, there was uh, a common belief amongst the people in the first century that when Messiah came, he would reinstate the gift of manna from heaven, a provision of bread from heaven. And it seems that that's what the men are asking for on this occasion, that he would demonstrate that ability as Messiah, And so in verse 35, the Lord Jesus mixes that and he says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is saying he's not going to reinstate this supply, constant supply of physical bread, but I am the bread of life. And because of who he is, he does give a complete, full, true, total, adequate satisfaction in himself to everyone who comes to him by faith. The Jews wanted an ongoing supply, a continual supply of their physical needs and Jesus says to them, no. There is a satisfaction that is complete and adequate and full, and it is enjoyed by all who come to me. The Jews then wanted the same old thing. Reinstate the miracle, the wilderness wandering food supply. They just want Jesus to supply physical needs, material needs. But Jesus says, no, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never be hungry. The one who believes in me will never ever thirst. I make a full and a complete provision. I give complete and utter satisfaction and it is definite and it is decisive. It is a once for all satisfaction. It's interesting to notice that one of the ways in which the Old Testament scriptures uh, describe for us God's judgment upon human sin is in terms of dissatisfaction or we may say I don't know if it's such a word, unsatisfaction. Uh, For instance, in Isaiah 28 and verse 20, we're told that God's judgment against sin is described in in this way. The bed is too short to stretch yourself upon and the covering is too narrow to wrap yourself in. Perhaps you've gone to stay with someone and uh, because they're a bit tight on space, you've ended up in one of the children's beds. And so uh, you climb into the bed, but uh, it's a bit shorter than a normal-sized bed, so your feet hang out to the end of the bed. Or perhaps there's a footboard on it, and you have to tuck your knees up and uh, get those feet inside the bed. And so you turn over onto your side, and you find there's a draft in your back because now the sheet won't go all the way around you. So you pull it the other way, and and your knees are hanging out of the bed, and you're freezing cold, and you're just uncomfortable all night. There's that sense of dissatisfaction. The Lord says in Isaiah 28, that's what their sins were bringing upon them, the bed too short to stretch themselves on, the the wrapping, the sheet too narrow to wrap themselves in. And there's just this deep sense of Dissatisfaction of being unsatisfied. That's the picture there in Isaiah 28. It portrays God's judgment as bringing about this deep sense of frustration, of futility. In Deuteronomy 28, we have a similar passage. The Lord tells the children of Israel that if they do not hear and if they do not obey His voice, then they will build houses, but they won't live in them, and they'll plant vineyards, but they won't Uh, eat of the grapes, dissatisfaction. But here in John 6, God's salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is spoken of as as a provision that is expressed in terms of complete and total satisfaction. Because here when Jesus says, the one who comes to me will never hunger, the one who believes in me will never thirst, He's not meaning by that that you will never again have any more desires. We know that because the scriptures tell us that we are to go on hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So there will be desires. But what Jesus means is that the emptiness is filled and the restlessness is gone. And the ache is banished because Christ completely satisfies the one who comes to him by faith, fully and adequately and completely. And the Lord Jesus wants us then to be assured about that. And then there's a second thing here uh, that the Lord Jesus uh, expects his mission to be successful. Verse 36 and verse 37. Uh, He says, I said to you, you have seen me And yet, do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. He wants us to be assured that there is a complete satisfaction to everyone who comes to Him by faith, and He wants us to be assured that His mission in the world is going to meet with a complete success. He's very straight with them, isn't He? He says to them, You've had the evidence. But that evidence hasn't been translated into any conviction or commitment. You have seen me, but you do not believe. You have the evidence, you've seen the feeding of the 5,000 and the other miracles that he had performed, but that hasn't been translated into faith or commitment. It hasn't been traced, uh, translated into trust or to confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the implication of what he's saying? When we come to that point, I hope that you have realized by now that an association and a familiarity with the Lord Jesus Christ, a knowledge of who he is and what he has done and so on, that none of that means you have any faith in him. You can have a connection with Jesus without having any communion with Jesus. These people had a connection. They saw wonderful things. They heard amazing things. But none of that had been translated into trust, into commitment, into faith in the Lord Jesus. They were close to him, but there was no communion with him. I've got a brother um, who a few years ago was employed by a, a company in London, and the company had been contracted to supply eight engineers to a a big construction uh, job in, uh, in Holland. The problem was they could only supply seven. So my brother Phil was called into the office and he was told that he was being made up to an engineer, that he had to go to Holland and he had a part to play. He was told he had to walk around that site with rolls of plans under his arm and if there was one thing that had to be sure, it was that he never answered a single question. Anyone asking a question about the job He was to say, I'll get back to you on that. Just playing a part. And so he spent six weeks walking around that huge site in in Holland. But he had no expert knowledge about anything that was going on there. He didn't have a single qualification to his name. He was just playing a role. And in a very similar way, you see, we can have a merely superficial connection and association with Jesus Christ and the church that falls short of a real, vital connection, a saving connection with Christ. And Jesus tells these Jews, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Might Jesus be able to say that about some of you? And would you expect that sort of response to discourage Jesus? He's done so many mighty works, those recorded in the first part of this gospel of John and others beside, and yet he's met by this implacable, unbelieving reaction. They will not believe upon him. They're unpersuaded by the things they've seen and heard. So what what hope is there that the mission that Jesus has been sent into the world to accomplish would meet with any success? Here are people who've observed the evidence that he's provided unpersuaded. His works are clear. His power is obvious. And yet they just go on in their unbelief and their opposition to all that he is and all that he does. But look at what Jesus says in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. All. That the Father gives to me will come to me. So when Jesus sees the unbelief of the Jews, that doesn't discourage him. He doesn't throw in the towel and say that his mission has failed, that God doesn't have a people after all. No, he says, All that the Father has given me will come to me. He's saying, God has guaranteed to give me a believing people. And I will have a believing people in spite of whether you believe upon me or not. He says to them, my father guarantees it. He has given them me. And all that he has given to me will come to me. So do you see what an astonishing statement that is? God gives the people to Jesus. And then individually, one by one, they come to him. How? Do they come to him? And why do they come to him? They come to him because God has given them to him. And you might ask, but what does that mean? Well, Jesus is talking here about the same thing that the Apostle Paul speaks about when he speaks in terms of predestination in the epistles. He writes about predestination uh, to decide... And to mark out beforehand to determine something ahead of time. That's how Paul speaks of it. The Lord Jesus doesn't use the same word here, but he's talking about the same thing. It's the same teaching with different terminology. Yet some people seem to have blinkers on when it comes to reading the New Testament. Uh, when they come to these passages, they just don't get it. They read the passage and they just don't. See what Jesus is saying. But what is he saying? When Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, he's saying God has marked out for Jesus and given to him a people. And those whom God the Father has given to him will in time actually come to him. Why do they come? They come because the Father has actually given them to the Son, to His Son Jesus. And that's why, though He was faced with this open hostility, this unbelieving crowd, Jesus nonetheless expects absolute success in His work. Facing implacable unbelief, He does not despair, He doesn't throw in the towel, Because God the Father has given him a people, and those whom God has given to him will surely come to him. Now, perhaps that whole idea bothers you a little. Perhaps you're asking, well, how can I know if I am one of those people whom the Father has given to the Son? Well, the answer to that question is very simple Have you come to him? Have you come? All that the Father has given to me will come to me. So have you come to Jesus Christ? What does coming mean? What does coming to Jesus mean? Well, we're told in verse 35 that it's the same as believing upon him. Have you come to Jesus by faith? You find the same sort of thing in in Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, uh, where Paul writes... uh, about the fact that the believers there were elect, chosen by God. He knew it. How did he know it? He tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance of faith, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord Jesus, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. How do you know you're one of God's chosen ones? He says. It's because of the way in which you've received His gospel. You've received His word in much affliction with joy the, of the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you're one of those whom God has given to His Son? You know by the reception you give to His word, to the gospel. And how do you know if you're among those then whom God has given to Jesus? Because all of those whom he has given to his Son will come to him. Have you come? That's the evidence. So I'm saying to you, don't you fret about whether or not God the Father has marked you out to give you to the Son. The question is, have you come? But you see Jesus' confidence and his assurance here. And that we too need to draw from this very same passage. He's telling us there's nothing uncertain about the cause of God. There's nothing uncertain about God's plan to save. There is nothing uncertain about God having a people in this world, no matter how hard and no matter how determined and deep-dyed human unbelief may be, and their opposition to Jesus Christ, all whom the Father has given to me will come to me. So there is no reason ever for disappointment. There is no reason for despair, because God will have a people, and he has given those people to Jesus, and infallibly every one of them will come to him. I hope that gives you some hope and confidence when it comes to thinking of the future of the church and the progress of the gospel in the world. Early in the 1500s, just before the Reformation, there was a landowner in Rome, a wealthy man who held a great feast. And in a show of his wealth, he served all his guests on golden plates, plates of solid gold. And afterwards, in another display of his wealth the servants came in and gathered up all those plates and threw them out of the window into the river tiber as if they were paper plates at a at a family barbecue or something but they were solid gold dinner plates but there was no need for distress because what the guests didn't know was that before they arrived he had ordered his servants to peg a net at the floor of the river on the riverbed outside of that very same window so that they could all be recovered and brought back in. That's how it is here. You can look at the gospel sometimes and see the way in which it is treated and how Jesus is so often rejected and you might begin to wonder what hope is there for the future of the people of God in the world and God's cause and kingdom but there's something you don't see. It's as if there's a net there There's something hidden uh, beyond our ability to see. It is the fact that God has given to Jesus a people. So the future of God's church, you see, does not rest upon our frantic efforts. It rests upon the decree and the decision of God in eternity, not only to give a people to Jesus, but to ensure that they will, every one of them, Come to him. God will not be without a people in the world. And then look at the security that Jesus promises in verse 37 and following. Why are those who come to Jesus secure? There are two main reasons that he gives. The first is the word of the Savior. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. There will never be a time when I will cast him out. Jesus isn't just there assuring us of a reception when we come to him at the beginning. Of course, that is obviously included. But he's saying that he's not going to let someone in and then sometime later say, Oh, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake. And now you've got to go. I'll never do that, says Jesus. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. If you have come to Jesus by faith, there will never come a day when he will say, I'm sorry, but I can't receive you after all. You have the word of the Saviour. In the months following the Second World War, they were not the finest in British history. They've let, left a blot, really, on the British character ever since. Because in 1945, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin met at Yalta to organise Europe at the end of the war, which was at that time clearly in sight. Part of the agreement that they made at Stalin's insistence was the enforced repatriation of all belonging to the occupied powers, all Soviet prisoners of war, all the citizens and soldiers of the land that the Russians had occupied. And though those people had been promised a safe haven in Great Britain and in other European countries, they were nonetheless sent back home to face certain death. And they were liquidated upon arrival. Stalin had them liquidated to ensure that there would be no one to fight his occupation as they fought the Nazi occupation. But they'd been given promises. They'd been given assurances. Jesus says, I will never do that to you. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. You have the word of your Saviour. But not only the word of the Savior, you have the will of the Father. Do you see that in verse 38? Jesus says, I won't cast you out. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I won't cast you out because it's my Father's will that you not be cast out. And that is especially underlined in verse 39 and 40, where Jesus describes this security in a number of ways. He says, first of all, in verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. Of all he has given me. He's seeing there the people of God as a united totality. All of them together, of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. And then in verse 40, he talks about individuals. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Sun. But what does that mean, to see the Sun? Well, he fleshes that out in the next phrase. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So in verse 40, he's looking at all of God's people Uh, Sorry, in verse forty, he's not looking so much at all of God's people, but he's looking at individual members. Of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, and everyone who sees the Son and believes on him should have everlasting life. So he sees the united totality of God's people, and then every single individual one of them, just in case you missed the point. And you notice that Jesus uses the present tense there in verse 40. They will have everlasting life. In other words, you don't get eternal life further down the timeline after you die. But according to Jesus, the moment you believe upon him, you have eternal life already. And notice also the assurance he gives at the end of verse 39 and 40. The assurance that he gives to us in the face of death. And I will raise him up at the last day. Because you might think it's all very well and good to have an assurance that the Father intends uh, that I be kept secure by Jesus Christ, that I never be lost. But what about death? What happens when death takes hold of me? Jesus assures us, I will raise him up in the last day. It's not then that Jesus says, I will take him to myself where he will enjoy Conscious communion with myself whilst in some disembodied state, though that is true. But I will raise him up. He is going to be restored as a fully embodied physical person. There is to be a resurrection of the body, and he says, Nothing, nothing will be lost. It will be restored even physically. So what an assurance Jesus gives to us in the face of death. You see, as a believer, you and I, we don't have all the answers, do we? But we do have a Saviour who says to us, I will never cast you out and who has said to you, I will raise you up in the last day." And the one thing he says to you in the face of all your fears, I'm never going to cast you out. And the other he says to you in the face of the certainty of your death, I will raise you up in the last day. And when you've got those two words from Jesus, I will never cast you out. I will raise you up in the last day. It seems to me that that's enough to know. So coming away from this passage and these words of Jesus, you should come away with this great assurance that he promises to satisfy completely everyone who comes to him by faith, and that he will certainly have a people who will never be rejected and who will never be destroyed. Lord bless his word to us. Let's pray. We thank you, our gracious God and Father, for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his wonderful words and for the astonishing assurance that he holds out to the people of God. We pray that we might come to him, look to him, trust him, follow him, serve him, die in him, be raised again to eternal and immortal life by him. We ask these mercies for your namesake and glory. Amen.